might teachers rethink science learning for all? Today on the show, I pass the mic over to my friend, May Lou, who interviews her friend, Dashiell McGorman. So I'm not your host, but I am Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. May Lou, welcome back to the podcast. This is your third time on the show, so you are no stranger to Teaching Tomorrow, but welcome back. So nice to have you. Thank you for having me back. This is another exciting time. And all three have been very different episodes. So for those of you who don't know May Lou, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. But May was on episode 27 when we were talking about May as a teacher runner. And that one still stands out as one of my favorite conversations. And then you came back episode 56, where we're talking about students not turning on their cameras in virtual world. And you join us again as a guest host. So why don't you start by reintroducing yourself? Can you tell everyone who you are? where you live and what you do. Okay, so my name is May. I am in Ottawa, Ontario, and I'm a grade 10, 11 and 12 science slash biology teacher. What I was thinking about as you brought all three episodes up just now is I think there's still a central theme throughout all of them. The first one, we talked about running and education, but the real thing we talked about was progression and Mm. giving and having growth mindset in the classroom, that culture, and how we as teachers pursue continuous progression and our own growth mindset. And then the second episode, I know we were talking about cameras, but if I remember correctly, we were talking about how the culture of our classroom and the culture of our relationships impacts whether or not students will turn on their cameras. And so I think we keep going back to this theme of the relationships we build and the culture we build. Mm. And I think that completely puts us into the path we're in now, where now we're coming back talking about create science. And I think create science's place really has to do with how we define science. What does doing science look like? What does being a scientist look like? And building in that model of having a growth mindset, but a culture that's safe, that brings relationships forward. I think we're on the same theme, but with different topics. So every time I get you to come back to the episode, which is, you know, like roughly every, you know, 20-ish episodes, I'll get you to come back and you'll do something brilliantly reflective and thoughtful that brings your full self into the episode. It's just what you do, Maylou. How do we do what we do without building relationships? That's true. And I'm grateful for the relationship I have with you because I was sort of toying around this idea of having people interview other people for the episode. And I've done this a few times, but I wanted to expand it. And I sent out a call to a few folks that I'm like, I feel like you might be amazing at this. And you answered the call right away. Like literally, I think a few hours after I sent out an email to you and a few other folks, you were like, oh, I know exactly who I want to interview. I know exactly what we're going to talk about. It's almost as if you were wanting to do it for a while. And it was just like the perfect excuse to do it. So when you pose that question of inviting people in to talk about non-traditional teachings, I was like, what was the gap that I was missing? Mm. And that was instant when I was like, Dash, because I met Dash after I had finished my science degree and Dash has a, a Roman history major, I believe. And when I first met him and became friends with him, we became friends because we decided to break rocks at 
at a spot in the Don Valley River. So wait, 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 I got to back up here because you do talk about the rock spot in the conversation and listeners will get into that. But when you say we became friends because we were breaking rocks open, like here's what I'm picturing. You going on some weird rock breaker opener meetup site on the internet and being like, hey, you want to go break some rocks with me? Like, what is that friendship like before you're breaking rocks together? For sure. So we met as co-workers at the Science Center and we were both uh, hosts, which is kind of like a really fancy way to say science communicator. We take kind of complicated science experiments and we make it easy for hundreds of people to watch. And when I say hundreds of people, I'm really talking a crowd yeah. of hundreds of people. When I met Dash, I didn't know his background, but he was really good at captivating an audience. Mm. And like we are as teachers, when you see someone who has a skill that you don't have, you're, you're, you're ready with to be a sponge and be like, what can I take and learn from you? And so it was interesting to me. So we kind of got to know each other a little better. And one day after work, typical average, what are you going to do? I'm going to go home and do this, or I'm going to go and do this. And he'll, he was like, I'm going to find fossils. <laughs> as one does, you know, regular yes. after work activity. It was so fascinating. So we'll queue up the conversation between you and Dash and we'll bring you back at the end of the conversation and you can share some of your key takeaways and your reflections in general about what it was like to host a podcast for a day. Anything you want to say before we jump right into it? I think really that the goal of of doing this episode was to really bring light to how we're all different learners, we're all different people. And science learning works for a lot of people in that traditional sense. But I think there's space to also explore different ways we can make science relevant to all. And it doesn't mean you have to be a scientist down the road, but I think doing science to us really has to do with developing critical thinking skills that will develop people. I love it. Okay, let's go right into your conversation. Let's have you introduce yourself. Tell everybody who you are, where you live, and what you do. Sure. Um, my name is Dashon Gorman. I live in the city of Toronto, which you can find uh, in Ontario, Canada, planet Earth. Uh, and I am, broadly speaking, a science communicator. I work in science engagement in a number of different capacities. Uh, may you know I wear a few different hats, but currently I'm, I'm primarily involved in uh, running a quite small uh, not-for-profit called Create Science. Um, I've also worked at the Ontario Science Centre. Uh, I do some uh, science communication work with a fantastic organization called Science Everywhere. A little bit of contract work on the side, and uh, generally I just try to have fun every day. Let's tell our listeners a bit about you, who you were as a student, because I think that gives context to where this perspective comes from, right? And so what yeah. were you like as a student? Who Who is Dash as a student? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... Uh, Dash went through a few stages of, I guess you could call them phases in his educational experience. And, and I think to smooth out the transition, I should say now that um, Dash is going to stop referring to himself in the third <laughs> person starting. <laughs> when I started school, um, I did, uh, I was first put into homeschooling um, by my parents um, starting in grade one. So uh, I didn't do the, um, JK, SK Jam, and um, 
my parents put me, uh, I was going to say put me in homeschool, but you know, they, you know, it was just home. It was there. It's not really anywhere to put me in that instance, but um, I was homeschooled up until grade four. And then I uh, gave grade five the old Skipperuni and started going to elementary school um, in the Toronto District Catholic School Board uh, in grade six. Like a lot of my perspective in retrospect on sort of what it was like um, developing the perspectives that I have on education came from that um, sort of transition from, I guess you could call one form of education to the next. And um, I think what I've learned looking back on it is that a lot of what happens um, for students in the school system is um, really related to inculcating the sort of um, sort of the ways of being in school, how to be a student, the processes, sort of like the, the routines, the schedules, um, how to function, how to make friends, how, you know, kids form it into their little social groups and you, like even something like homework. I didn't understand why it was important. It wasn't until high school, like later in high school where I started to develop proactive learning and being able to invest myself in coursework. And sort of finding ways to be a good student and to get that emotional like positive feedback that you get when you you do well in school and you want to get more of that feeling and you know you, you get your curiosity sparked and you, you get that that sort of like hunger for learning that I hope everyone experiences in some regard at any point in their life when they find a passion um it took me a while for me to find out how to apply that to to school one of like the greatest advantages I had was just like really supportive and open parents so you know, I wouldn't describe my experience going from homeschooling to the school system as easy or even maybe ideal by any stretch. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of that happened because my parents were looking for the best way to nurture a level of um, curiosity and appreciation for the world um, in maybe a, perhaps like a less structured environment. I, I think they were maybe a little apprehensive about setting specific expectations on me or um, putting me in a I think they had some bad experiences with my my older brother in mm -hmm. in a, a school system and uh, they wanted to avoid sort of what maybe could be perceived as like bigger systemic issues that they didn't want to expose us to um, but that means when I was homeschooled there was very very little structure which was set up some of the challenges I had later but also that really opened up play to me I spent just an awful lot of time running around in the backyard climbing trees playing with sticks digging in the dirt mm -hmm. and that definitely does shift a way or develop a way of thinking in terms of just openness and exploration and I think I've come to observe that if people are enjoying themselves and if they're engaged with what they're doing learning just happens on its own because it's just absorbing the information available to you and you know, I've come to strongly believe that um, much of learning is just positive emotional reinforcement, because if you do something or if you're exposed to information, it might not stick that first time, but if you enjoyed it and if you want more of it, you'll keep engaging with it. And you only ever keep developing the, I guess, like the infrastructure or the background context that new information can then fit into. Um, and so you get pretty good, I think, that way of just pattern recognition and having open eyes you know it's hard for me to speak broadly about how everybody learns and what works for everybody but you know in broad strokes 
I think what it would have said about um, the emotional reward, rewards of learning through play and exploration Stan and certainly for myself I think you know I started going to this the rock spot or the river spot if you will um, just because it was it was a good way to unwind on my way home from work in the Don Valley uh, in Toronto skipping stones and um, I wasn't looking for fossils but I began to find them by accident as I was breaking rocks open to sort of make better better skipping stones um, and that quickly dovetails into you know finding a pattern of a rock and wanting to know more about what it is and once you start finding more of those patterns you start to want just want to understand more about you know why is this shape showing up in that type of rock but not this type of rock um, or how did this end up here in the first place what is it how old is it um, and a lot of that is just attached to that sheer awe and that moment of wonder and discovery when you break a rock open and you know you see a little trilobite in there and you are just not even the first human but like the first living thing to observe and interact with that little fossil um, or what is now a fossil that living organism that lived upwards of 250 or more million years ago and um, you know I don't get that same feeling when I walk through a museum and just look at the fossils there. It's more interesting now because I have the context of my previous experience that I can bring to a, you know, a paleontological, is that the word paleontological, paleontology exhibit? I normally lean on you for vocabulary. So no, you, you don't really know. shouldn't count on me. <laughs> I was going to say now that if you don't know, co coming to me is not going to Oh be no, I am, I am a rank amateur in this stuff. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> You know, but what I'm saying is, you know, when I go to, um, you know, the paleontology exhibit in the ROM, for example, the rocks are more interesting to me now. The samples that they have are more interesting to me because of the experience and memories that I have of finding fossils and building my collection from what I found in the Don Valley. But they don't spark that same wonder and discovery, that sense of curiosity and that wants to drive further discovery um, that I got when I was just out in the river playing with no real purpose, just smashing rocks and making observations and just following that curiosity as it developed. I think that's such a good thing that you brought up though, like the curiosity and the discovery. In our school system, we talk a lot about like learn through play. And I am no expert in the primary junior divisions. Uh, I teach high school, but you hear it a lot among primary teachers, this learn through play, learn through play. But me sitting in senior school, upper school, like those high school, the grade nine to 12 meetings, you often hear, especially now with COVID happening, you hear, can we get through all the curriculum in time? We talk about how many days, how many academic hours can we really get through everything? And this is where I think science communication really influences how we teach because what you just said, Right before the holidays, we were looking at the same fossil samples from the Don Valley that you and I had talked about and found in the rock spot. And I said that exact thing of, you are the first human to hold this fossil and to discover this living organism in millions of years. You were the first person to set eyes on that. And that's just like, it's so cool when we think about that. 
yeah, a so lot of now, it comes from perspective, right? As soon as you, yeah. you know, there's no, a lot of people would say there's no scientific merit to that sense of wonder, but it doesn't relate to the information that you draw from that observation. That's the observation that gives you the, um, the drive and momentum that carries you forward through, you know, the challenges of a much longer learning journey because there's a lot of fatigue to get through if you're just in an environment that doesn't have how often you know how often I remember hearing kids you know when I was in school uh, and certainly I experienced this myself of like well why do I need to know this I don't see why this is important you're just trying to get through the curriculum that's given to you because you want to score well enough on a test so that your parents and your teachers stop bothering you about it right (laughs) um and that doesn't really spark the sort of um relationship with learning that carries people past school like I like that like what does it mean to be a learner and then so what are we bringing into our classrooms like and I'm curious now about the idea of science communication and really what brought us here to this conversation is you know why why science communication as a chosen profession I'm going to ask too many questions that I don't think are going to get all answered because now <laughs> I have 20 questions because I'm thinking, I feel like I take so much from that science communication experience into the classroom. And so obviously I have that bias and perspective of how does science communication benefit the classroom? Well, I think it needs to be in our classrooms. How do, how do we use science communication to promote that learning mentality? Because who who really remembers mitosis after grade 10 science? I honestly didn't remember it until I had to teach it again. But there's skills in that learning process that students can take away after grade 10, right? And so I just think like, how do we, yeah, like where, where does science communication fit in all of this? I have the view that, and it's easy to slip into this, myself I think it's natural um you know mitosis is the example um you we have the notion that you're going to be asked to learn something because you know it's assigned to you um so you'll try to reach the level of competency that will allow you to pass the test or um say I know this I know this currently um but that's really not how memory works it's going to be gone if not in you know, 30 minutes after the test, then within a year or a few years after you've, you've learned, if you're not using that information and applying it or cross-referencing it with other knowledge, um, Mm -hmm. it kind of falls by the wayside. And, you know, you might encounter it later and you'll learn it more quickly because you knew it before, but it's not information that will really factor into your life. Um, And I have the view that any knowledge you're exposed to, um, you know, hopefully it sticks, but where it has real power is in how you can cross-reference it with things you already know. If you, you know, if you are being taught something that you're not familiar with, I think it's a lot easier for it to stick and for it to, you know, not only to, you know, memorize, you know, specific facts or information that you're being asked to remember, but uh, I think recognize the significance and role that information plays in the world when you can put it in context, Mm -hmm. you know? So if, if you're learning something uh, about say mitosis, um, 
it can be so much more significant if that information is being fit into what other information you might have about any range of subjects because you know six degrees of science separation can be an amazing game to play (laughs) and how closely connected many concepts are once you start broadening the scope of one particular subject to account for like the full spectrum of science and technology and economics and sociology and history and geology like just whatever you'd like to talk about you can make connections and I think that's a really powerful tool in science communication because a lot of that starts with you know if I want to teach someone something the first step for me is to understand what context is this going into Um, what's going to spark the interest of the person I'm talking to because while they might not be an expert yet on what I'm talking about the things I'm talking about in some way will connect to the things that they are passionate about that do interest them. And a lot of people, you know, if you just ask them, what is science? The first topics that might jump to their mind are, you know, compartmentalized subjects of science, uh, chemistry, engineering, whatever. Um, And I think part of that is because the structure or in a lot of ways, the purpose of the school system is to create sort of streams of education that people fit into, which then sort of turn into career paths which sort of become ever more specialized fields which is why I prefer to not think of science as compartmentalized subjects or some vast repertoire of human knowledge that exists somewhere but as a process to me science is a process by which we ask questions and we work towards finding answers and I say work towards finding answers because there really is no perfection there's no point at which science is done But when science is viewed this way, I think it transforms how science education happens. I want us to know more about how your perspective, your experiences brought you to create science, because I think, you know, how everything (laughs) you've done has brought you here. We started Create Science because we'd uh, had a strong background of experience working in science engagement uh, with uh, an organization called Science Everywhere, um, which is an events and media production company that um, does is really successful in science engagement. But from my experience, there are a lot of barriers to doing um, what I would describe as like more community focused um, and mission oriented science communication uh, that I wanted to be doing. And especially because I know so many talented and amazing educators who they hustle so hard to get working opportunities that they, you know, they really struggle to just focus on delivering the programming that they want to do that really is transformative in a time when we really as a society, I personally feel, need to be um, developing healthier cultures um, around Mm. how do we learn, what do we learn, um, and really how do we, I think, conceptualize science and technology as uh, a part of our daily lives that we contribute to. To be honest, cutting past those um, the profit incentives, which I think can be a mitigating factor for a lot of organizations in how they develop programming and where they target that programming. Um, as a not-for-profit, uh, it's, it's much more clear in terms of being able to think of what sort of impact that I want to be having, um, identify the target audience that I would like to bring that programming to, 
connect the funding to that project and then, you know, just make it happen. And I love what you said about the impact, because I've also been thinking a lot about the impact of education, the impact of learning. What is our impact and role? I'm coming from the lens of the educator. Of what is our role in all of this? Like, what is our impact on these, uh, on youth and on, on our students? And I also know with my other hat uh, that when we first looked at Create Science, you asked me to be on the board with a couple other people. And we spent a while looking at how Create Science can promote that community relationship and what that meant to all of us. And I think we landed after really taking the time, but landed on the equity and science piece and what things we wanted to focus on. And I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little more about just why that direction, what inspired this, why this sphere of influence. And I think that really, to me, I thought more about accessibility in science and why I wanted science to be accessible to all. But I think when we had those meetings, we all had different perspectives of why we want, where we saw create science going and why. You know, something that is, you know, there's, I I have a lot to say about sort of the challenges that I see um, Mm -hmm. in in education and science engagement, but there's a lot to be also said for progress that's been made. And something that I'm quite optimistic about is that in in my lifetime as a student, um, I've seen it happen where representation in science has become more of a priority in in education because for you know in a lot of cases you know you, you've got to see yourself in, in that role to you know really pursue um, you know not even career interests in the field of science but even just recognizing as science as being a field that is inclusive of your views and is um, impactful in your life in more than just the way this people sort of um, sort of yes living under the thumb of the 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 field of science and technology um yeah and i think it goes back to when you said that like 100 people lined up how many would step forward and say i'm not a science person yeah and i think that starts you know for a lot of reasons for individuals they, they start down that path where that sort of perspective becomes cemented but a really big part of that is um the question of equity in science, um, especially when mm-hmm. people are emotional learners. So when you look at the history of science and technology and you see the the range of just egregious wrongs that have been committed um, in the pursuit of science and technology or the people whose perspectives um, and contributions to science have been um, not only ignored and dismissed, but you know actively suppressed. Um, it's you know, that's the sort of, that sort of history, when people look at it, it's pretty easy for, for people to, you know, identify and say, oh, that's not for me. Um, and that can cross correlate with experiences where you just, uh, you didn't grasp a science subject right away. You might've had a teaching experience where um, you were made to feel like you just couldn't get it. Um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to say, but how many people have the experience of being like, I'm just not smart enough for this, or I just don't get that. I don't have them head for math or whatever. And it's, it's interesting for me because, you know, um, you know, on the one hand, 
I have the, the many benefits of uh, being a white male in the realm of, of science and technology education. But I think in a lot of ways, my experience, you know, this is, gets to like what I was talking about when I, when I said in retrospect, a lot of my um, learning process makes a lot of sense because when I was going to school out of homeschooling, I had lived in such um, an unrestricted learning environment where we just had a big old bookshelf at home and I would just pull any book off of it, book off of it and just spend hours reading. And that was what homeschooling was to me and then go outside and play and then come back in. Um, and that meant, I think I had a fairly open-ended perspective. I didn't bring a lot of preconceptions to mm-hmm. school. And then once I was in a classroom environment, a lot of these sort of presumptions about the way things were or um, the presentations of history, which didn't quite align with what I had read or, or already learned, um, I was a little bit more inclined to ask questions about why is it like that? And you start parsing out the difference between a narrative or sort of like a presentation of history or uh, a representation of science. And then the view that there's behind it all, there's uh, a reality that encapsulates a much, much bigger picture of what you encounter in the snapshot that a you know, specific textbook or, or lesson plan might, might give you. But everything you just said is so amazing though. And I think this is why you've pointed out so many gaps we have and so many things educators are trying to close. And this is where Create Science came about, right? It's all these questions we all had and trying to fill these spaces. Yeah, you know, it's, (laughs) I I know I, I skipped over a little bit um, I think a key part of a question you'd ask me of like, just how did we get here, right? Because there's a big jump yeah. from from sort of developing perspectives, looking back on what it was like going to school, and then suddenly, bang, I'm in science communication. There was a point where I I started working at the Ontario Science Centre, and through my role there, um, I think a lot of my views in terms of just playing with science started to crystallize. I started to appreciate gaps in my own learning that I hadn't been aware of at the time. And it's from there that I started working with an awesome individual by the name of Anthony Morgan on Science Everywhere. Um, and we, the core philosophy of, of a, a lot of our work there has carried over into Create Science where I really strongly believe that if you put playing first, education will follow, uh, especially in that particular type of learning environment. And for me, that really connects my experience growing up and trying to figure out how to be a student in a much more constrained environment that I was used to, but then bringing a lot of my habits and perspectives into that environment and over time figuring out how to apply those perspectives to eventually be successful as a student. And that is what's ultimately driving create science because if we can develop a program where you know we don't even need to tell people we're here to teach you we don't need to tell people that we're here to share fresh perspectives on science technology and culture what we can do is just create an activity that lets people play and if you're playing with like material that is ancillary to much bigger discussions 
of science and technology, those discussions will follow as long as what you're doing first sparks fun and curiosity. You tap into someone's creativity and you um, get them engaged. That's when they start asking questions like, how does this work? What does this do? And in that situation, my role, I view my role um, as a science communicator to start facilitating a much deeper conversation and connecting what we're doing to that individual's interests and passions. These conversations can suddenly dovetail into such bigger, bigger topics um, exactly because of that six degrees of science separation. <laughs> I love that. I love, because it just reminds us that science is so much more than our curriculum. It really and is. Experience I had as a science communicator really impacts how I approach teaching in my classroom now. And in hindsight, I was, one of the goals when I first started teaching, and you mentioned it is, putting an activity, putting something in front of people. And I didn't quite get there in my first year, but by my second and third, I confidently can say like, I have an activity, every class there's gonna be an activity. And it's interesting now because my students expect it. Sometimes it feels <laughs> like there's pressure. Because uh, yeah. when they're standing in the hall, you're coming in to unlock the door, you already hear, what activity are we doing today? What are we playing with today? And and that's what I think Create Science wants to share with people too. And so how do we, how do we bring this science communication mindset and how do we bring that to classrooms? How do we support teachers? Mm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I really like how you've described the process by which you've engaged your students because um, it's not at all something that I would have generally expected to encounter in my classrooms as a, as a young kiddo growing up. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember when like activities were introduced to a classroom, but it always felt as sort of like a very constrained, uh, I guess, perfunctory formality of like, we are now doing an icebreaker and then we're going to continue to stage two of what we're doing. <laughs> um, and, you know, for me as a kid, again, my experience can't speak for everybody's, but that's where I would kind of roll my eyes a little bit where it just, it feels like I said, rather perfunctory and it doesn't seem, you know, purpose-driven, um, sort of uh, checking all the boxes as you will. Um, but not everyone but, has experience in science. Yeah. Like, not no, it's, it's an art and it's something it's easy to take for granted. You know, it's not an indictment of sort of that process necessarily. It's, I think it's, it has a lot to do with human psychology and how we tend to think of how a classroom should function when you're trying to create like the perfect template for how to do it. Um, and in my work, it's, it's a little more complex for me because I'm often looking at how to engage um, adults as well as children, both in separate and in combined audiences with science mm -hmm. engagement. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's my view that, you know, kids are just tiny adults and adults are just big kids <laughs> with some variance, but ultimately we are generally driven by the same motivations and the same negative or positive feedbacks will work. Um, so, you know, if I wanted to get, uh, create a, set up a learning environment with a number of young children, um, the first thing I would do is implement an activity. Let's, it doesn't have to be specific or purpose-driven. You would just 
start doing yeah. a craft, whatever, and you start asking questions and talking to them. Um, and in my role as an educator, really what I would be looking for there is that's how I start um, sort of sussing out um, what is each individual going to most respond to once we start trying to bring in more specific content. Uh, and it's really not that different with adults. Um, and it sounds to me like when, you know, I've only been in, I think, your classroom once when we did that fossil. Fossil. Oh, yes. That was must have been like five or six years ago, too. Yeah. But I could right away tell the difference, um, you know, in your students when they were ready to be engaged and they were looking for the activity and you know you fall into a routine of like expectation and I pick up on that right away when your students are looking <laughs> for the activity like what's today um people, it's funny people's... you say that like you built but I don't know how to describe it sometimes and I it's not easy to describe I'm struggling with it right now I have a student teacher this year and I it really made me think a lot about how do I describe the way I approach teaching. And that's probably why you went around the question so much too, because sometimes it's hard to describe it's it. It's really tough, especially and because you, yeah. the question is almost setting up like, what's the template? How do you have sort of an activity sheet that could then be distributed to say 10,000 people and then they can all do this? Um, and to some degree, yes, that's feasible. But I think the reason it's sometimes tough to describe is that a core function of this is the open-ended nature of it to that's just create room exactly it's you know moving outside of that comfort zone of having like a defined very defined activity or very defined um you know time set apart for the specific purpose mm -hmm. of you know breaking the ice so to speak um and then just creating room when you just have room um to have that sort of playful open-ended engagement I think that flips a switch in people's minds when you're in a learning environment or, you know, just out in the world um, that makes people just more ready to engage and more ready to invest themselves in that mm -hmm. situation. But also it primes in a way an individual for that positive emotional experience, which hopefully ultimately reinforces the core purpose of that, you know, that defined period of time for the lesson or um, if we're talking about a classroom environment. There's a lot of teachers probably listening to this podcast and where does create science fit with educators? Because as a science communication brand, you are doing your own educational experiences outside the curriculum, but do you see create science percolating into the Ontario classrooms or the Ontario system? because we talked a lot about this mindset and I don't think teachers are reluctant about it, but they want to learn and where can they learn? In typical not-for-profit fashion, um, we are mission and goal oriented. Um, you know, I'm very much, uh, I'm not so happy if I'm doing work where I don't feel like I am, uh, you know, idealistically chasing the, the ideal of I'm gonna change the world. Um, and I think a big part of that is bringing the perspectives that I have in science communication um, to communities. And that definitely includes classroom environments. Um, and th I think there's a bit of a give and take there where um, in our approach to programming, we bring a lot to 
supplement learning experiences. Um, but also for our benefit, you know, it's our goal. We want to fill gaps in learning. So we want to isolate community needs. For, for me, my priority is identifying what the classroom needs are first and then better understanding, okay, what are the gaps that I'm looking to fill? Um, me personally, I feel a lot of that comes down to perspective because the way the school system is set up is devised to carry children along a, a defined learning path that leads them towards career-driven studies, um, ultimately because we want to raise productive citizens who can thrive in our economy, uh, basically. That, mm. um, especially when you have you know, the policy incentive behind what are the metrics by which we measure the success of a school system tend to be uh, in economic output. Um, and that's not necessarily bad, but it comes with a lot of shortfalls in terms of how do we think of perspective in science and how does that relate to raising healthy individuals who um, have an interest and passion for lifelong learning because that translates into people who vote better, people who have better self-esteem, have better mental health, um, mm, just yes. better work-life balance because there's so many times I have encountered people who tend to think of you know, a liberal arts degree, as an example, as a waste of money and a waste of time, because when you come out of most liberal, art, liberal arts programs, you're, you're not fast-tracked in most cases for um, a high salary entry position. It doesn't quite, in a lot of cases, fit into, uh, I think, what a lot of people are raised to expect in terms of that conventional career path of, like, you go through these stages of school, you graduate, you get a job, you get married or whatever, and now you're mm -hmm. launched as an adult. You don't, you know, you can just function as is now until you retire, and then you hit the next transitional stage. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not exactly how you know, that has nothing to do with um, innate qualities of humans. These are us trying to develop a system that raises children to function in the social construct that is the world we've built for ourselves. And I think that's the gap that I care about filling with create science, because we can do so much more to bring perspectives on science and learning that I think supplement and build on the curriculum material that it fits into that more systemic function. I love what you said about how the learning from science has so many tie-ins to just the life skills of making good choices that critically thinking about decisions and voting. I think that's so important. Um, yeah, it's it's very hard for me to define. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite ready to publish my thesis on this yet, but <laughs> um, I think in a lot of ways, the, the nature of sort of a career-driven educational system, you tend to create, you know, graduated adults who have very specialized interests, which can come with substantial blind spots for sort of information or subjects or mm -hmm. reference points that fall out of what they might consider to be their particular area of expertise. And that's just to me, that's not the nature of, of how the world works. And that quickly leads to um, a compartmentalization of industries and of um, professionals in terms of 
what people might consider to be their wheelhouse, um, or also how they're willing to, I think, bring empathetic views to how they consider other people's opinions or viewpoints. Oh my gosh, that's so important. That empathetic view, especially in today's world, I think is so crucial. <clears throat> so crucial. I, yeah, what you said, like everything you just said. Yes. Can I just, yes. We're, I, I need a like, that was easy button or something. I mean, you can put all that on a bumper sticker if you want, if it fits. But I think you've defined it. Like, I think at the end of it, <laughs> the goal of science communication is helping develop individuals who will make sound choices, who will make critically thought out decisions, have taken perspectives and have an empathetic lens on how they approach the decisions they make in their lives. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a philosophical question isn't it like does school exist and now what I'm about to say is very binary I don't necessarily think this is you know the system as it exists but there's a philosophical question there of like does school exist to raise accountants and nurses and engineers and so forth or does the school system exist to raise healthy adults who are prepared to just generally participate in society. Um, those aren't mutually exclusive. The expectations that people bring to school, whether it's from the parents or from their teachers or them themselves, um, those expectations can very much drive what they think school is for and then what they expect to get out of it, but also what they put into it. I just think that's fascinating because it it goes back to science communication at the core. For all you know, in your activity that you do, you could plant a seed of curiosity that leads someone down the road to pursue a specific career in science. But it doesn't mean you were not necessarily giving them also this critical thinking skills, the empathetic lens of perspective, right? Like both of those happen at the same same time. I like to think, yeah. um, and I've said it before and I'll stand by it, it's, it's not what you think, it's how you think. Um, oh, so key. I love it. I'm going to get that tattooed on my forehead. That is a decision I'll save for you. <laughs> okay. I think it's, as you said it though, right? It's not what you think about, but how. And I think, I think that's the perfect ending to this because doesn't that leave a train of thought for people to think about? Always leave people wanting more. That's what they say, right? <laughs> well, now that we're bridging to the end, I have a couple quick questions. They're your ticket out the door. That's All right. Something you are grateful for right now. My mom and dad. I just came from visiting them. And I'm happy to know that they're healthy and uh, living their best lives. First thing you do when you wake up? I usually, it's not up to me. I have to uh, greet my cat, Leia, because she's going to be there right away. Aww. What about the last thing you do before you go to bed? Brush my teeth. Oh, but then I walk to bed. Am I counting like the, <laughs> the standard, like the full like routine? Uh, I'm going to say the sentence that you often say to me 
you are being pedantic. Yes, I am. Woo! Look at me. New vocab words. <laughs> uh, peanut butter or chocolate? Peanut butter. Really? But, but with the exception that there are certain varieties of chocolate that I enjoy more than peanut butter, I'm veering towards peanut butter because my, my tastes in chocolate are particular enough that I would say like 80% of chocolate, I like less than I like 100% of peanut butter. You're not particular with your peanut butter? I mean, within, within reason. I'm not going to eat peanut butter that I've like found on the sidewalk, but. Okay. I have to ask this. Do you put your peanut butter in the fridge or leave it out? I, when I buy peanut butter, I'll leave it out and I forgot, I'll forget that I bought peanut butter. Um, it'll be in like the back of my pantry or something. Then I will remember that I bought peanut butter. I will utilize it uh, in some culinary capacity. Uh, and then I will put it in the fridge. Interesting. I put peanut butter in the fridge, but I've no learned that's a pretty, co- like not everyone does that. I didn't know this some was pe- controversial. Why? I, I don't know. Apparently some people think it's really weird to put peanut butter in the fridge and they leave okay it on in their pantry. But I didn't, like, I grew up with peanut butter always going in the fridge. Me too. I mean, I will say um, it usually bothers me when peanut butter comes, like, right out of the fridge and it's harder to spread. Um, mm. Usually, uh, I covert, I overcome this inconvenience, I suppose, uh, by planning ahead. So I'll take the peanut butter out about 10 minutes wow. before I plan on using it. And I usually put peanut butter on toast, which will circumvent that uh, hurdle a little bit as well. Mm. Okay. I didn't know it was weird. I'm, I mean, I'm okay with being weird, but because I'm not going to change. Uh, but I, I don't know if, I don't know. I've just, I've been given looks before for putting my peanut butter in the fridge. I think you're doing the right thing. I mean, I've just found ways to get around whatever problems come with putting it in the fridge. It just <laughs> feels right. So never change. Me. Thank you. What would your last meal on earth be? Is there some loophole where like, if my last meal is just preposterously huge, then... Are like you going to eat it all in one go? Yeah, but like, is it going to extend my life if my meal is just like no. a kilometer long one dish. sandwich? Okay, one dish, one dish. I would like a kilometer long sandwich, like a foot long, but huge. A kilometer yeah. of a sandwich. It's my last meal. What kind of sandwich? I wasn't ready for the follow-up. I should have been, huh? Mm-hmm. Lately, I have been making my sandwiches... Uh, with guacamole as, as the spread instead of, instead of like mayo. And, uh, I mix and match my, my sandwich toppings outside of that. But, um, uh, I've, I've greatly appreciated the, the, the switch to guacamole. So, um, I know it's only a partial answer. No, like not just guacamole, just different sandwich toppings beyond that salad, mustard, lunch meats, cheese, whatever get playful with it but I've, I've been using guacamole pretty consistently as my, my sandwich spread um also i'm already moving away from sandwiches last meal it feels it'd be fine yeah. but i feel like i was missing something i don't want to add like french toast and a smoothie and... i feel like you've gone with the sandwich so okay i mean uh, if it's already written down it's written in stone I okay well i want I want my last meal to be best sandwich ever. Here's the hard one. Mm-hmm. What is the future of learning? So that's tough, of course. Um, 
it might become more fractured, I think, uh, as learning interests become more specialized. Um, I think the, the scope of how people can learn is broadening. You can even see that in how people think of, you know, how do we use a library? Um, mm-hmm. where, did, where can virtual learning go? What is the ideal classroom? Like there are so many different iterations and um, I don't necessarily see those crystallizing into um, any one future trend that will dominate. Um, but for me, at the heart of it, I think the principles and values that are conveyed in education are, are really where the, the future is, I think, um, unwritten and can take a more definitive path. Um, so that's where certainly I don't know quite what to expect. I could talk about the influence that I would like to have and where I would like to see it going. But for me, the most important um, trend or, or development that I'd like to see in the future of learning is the um, the inclusion of perspective, um, the expansion of viewpoints, and I think the development of the role that empathy plays in learning. How do we account for other people's viewpoints and perspectives? How do we account for the conclusions that other people might make from even the same information um, that's made available. So how do we interpret statistics? Uh, I know there's an old quote about, um, you know, <laughs> how many varying ways can you interpret one statistic? Um, and a lot of that has to do with the bias and expectation that someone brings to it. Now, of course, there's a scientific process behind all that, but um, I th- think um, from my own experience, growing up as a student uh, and perspectives I think I've developed um, engaging with education uh, is that I, I think speaking optimistically, um, what, what I see developing is education that I think is more inclusive and is more actively involved in accounting for diversity and equity in, I mean, I was gonna say science, but in literally any subject material, um, Mm -hmm. there's so much to be said for um, the inclusion of human perspective and and issues of equity. Uh, And I think that that correlates closely to how do we raise more empathetic and um, I think uh, open-minded uh, adults in the long term. Well, it's what we said this whole podcast too, right? About how science percolates into everything, mm-hmm. building empathy and all these subjects, the six degrees of science. <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah, six degrees of science. That's that's the new tagline. Put on a t-shirt. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. I love it. May Lou, thank you so much for doing this interview. I had so much fun listening to it and editing it. And we were joking about all the like fun asides that you two had and the obvious collegial energy that you two had with each other. What was it like for you to listen back to yourself interviewing your friend and colleague? It's interesting because we both have very similar views, which is I think why we get along so well. But as a result, 
every time he's talking, you're like, how do I put a button up there to say yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I think that was the hard part because in a podcast, I don't get that visual to be like, I am nodding profusely, but you can't see this right now. I feel like even just for the guests, sometimes I just want to hold up a little yes sign, be like, keep going. That was awesome. But not to cut them off with my own enthusiastic cheers in the background, but you did wonderful with it. Now that you've had that experience of getting to interview a friend, would you do it again? Like, would you do hosting a podcast again? And I'm asking because I love you and I want you to have be on the podcast a million times, but would you do it again? I a hundred percent would. And I think it's, you know, a good way to also have different perspective and different views, because I do think having worked with Dash, he really changed my perspective on learning science. And I came from it from that like lecture base, what I experienced in school, and then what I experienced in university. And I think he really showed me that idea. And I felt it with looking at fossils that, that innate, like, what is this, that discovery, that curiosity, I felt it. And I, and I, really lived how powerful that can be beyond just the like this was cool I'm curious about it but from a really engaging in something long term and developing that kind of project out of it and I think that's something we can take in anything we do as teachers or whatever we do I think that curiosity and then that want to discover more the asking of questions I think we anyone no matter what you're doing can take that to whatever perspective or whatever career they're currently in Mm. I just wanted to close by saying thank you for taking up the call and for sharing your expertise and your friend and your voice and your thoughtful inquisitive nature I think you know this is why I love doing the podcast is having the permission ticket to get to talk to really fascinating people and then extending that permission slip to other people. Cause of course you could just sit down and have a drink with dash and talk to him about things you love or go back to the rock spot and smash open rocks. But I don't, I, I believe that there's something different about having a dedicated formal time to just interview somebody. Like you learn things that you, and you experience things and you talk to people in ways that we don't normally get to talk to casually and as friends. So I'm really grateful to get to have a window into your friendship and into the way that you think and you work. Thank you. I'm really excited to even share that with people too, because it's just a different perspective. And I think we learn so much from meeting people and talking to people. We just learn so much about other people's learning experiences that I think it's really cool to just hear how people tackle different things. Well, I think that's why podcasts are so phenomenal like why I'm obsessed with them because I deeply love getting to understand the world from other people's perspectives and hearing what being a teacher is like for them or being in education is like for them so getting to listen to you and Dash was a real pleasure it was I, and I hope other people feel that too like it's just really fun to get to listen to you to literally nerd out together about things that <laughs> you know just are so cool and so outside of my experience so again just a big heartfelt thank you to you, May. This episode is being released on February 1st, 2022. And when I told this to May, she asked me to send a special message that wishes everyone a happy Chinese New Year and that she is beyond excited to be kicking off the Year of the Tiger. Love that message. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep breaking open the rocks in your world. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.